0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, a woman sent to prison for fraud during the mortgage crisis that led to the Great Recession of 2008 speaks out about government corruption.
2: It was all about a big shakedown from a prosecutorial process that wanted to be paid off. And if I would have paid them, I wouldn't have been prosecuted.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. You would be shocked to know how many people are experiencing some kind of paranormal activity in their home or business, perhaps even some kind of spirit oppression. It's not something that's discussed in public for fear of ridicule, but it is happening. And maybe it's happening to you or someone you care for. Make no mistake, this is a serious matter, and my good friends at Paranormal Contractors treat it with the seriousness it deserves. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They'll come to your home with the latest and the best technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Why not put your mind at rest and take that first step? Call them at one 866 724 one 866 724 or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Welcome to your Friday. Susan Alt is standing by to discuss how everyone, investors, banks, the government, brokers and borrowers, were all committing mortgage fraud back in the mid-2000s before the crash. But she was singled out and sent to prison while the big players all walked. And because it's Friday, of course, that means a visit from Christian Dicadieu from Paranormal Contractors. And Christian will be my guest on Coast to Coast AM this Saturday, March the 30th, to talk about crime scene contamination and paranormal investigation. On the back of her book, Fractals of Deception, Odyssey of a Great Recession Fall Girl, Susan Alt writes, The government tricked its investors. Banks tricked the government. Brokers tricked banks and borrowers tricked the brokers. Although everyone was willfully complicit in this multifaceted sleight of hand, when it crumbled, only a handful of people went to prison for mortgage fraud. Susan J. Alt was one of them. Susan Alt, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Good. Thank you, Richard. It's nice to talk to you today.
1: Now, for those who are maybe too young to remember, I know that sounds strange since we're only talking about uh, just over 10 years ago, but there may be some who... Were even asleep at the switch a little bit. Didn't really know what was going on. Talk to me about the the Great Recession of two thousand and eight, and and how uh, subprime mortgages were largely responsible.
2: Uh, okay. Well, it, it, it's a colossal behemoth of a problem. I mean, it, it's multi layered. Um, generally speaking, you know, banks, um, you know, get money from the, the secondary market, which is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and some of the government agencies. Like the bank has the manpower to go and get the borrower and do all the processing and run the credit, et cetera. And then the bank packages mortgages in bundles. And sells them to Fannie Mae. Let's use that as an example. Now, Fannie Mae does not have the wherewithal or the you know, the staff or anything to do all this underwriting and checking out all these borrowers. So the the Fannie will tell the banks, uh, this is the type of mortgage we want from you. You know, we want twenty percent down payments. We want um, uh, a credit rating of such and such, and we want an income ratio of usually it's three to one, right. meaning you have to make triple your mortgages. So that has been the kind of the, the theme and the basis for mortgages for decades, if not whatever Fannie Mae started uh, 80 years ago. And then what happened was after the stock market crashed and the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, there was like trillions of dollars that leaked out of the stock market or ran from the stock market, I should say, you know, looking for a place to invest money. And so they went to Fannie Mae and said, you know, do you, can we buy, invest with you? And Fannie Mae takes outside investment money. And so they had all the hedge funds and sovereign global equity funds, you know, putting, wanting to put millions of dollars, you know, into a secure investment after just losing everything in the dot-com uh, era. So Fannie Mae was all of a sudden flooded with all of this money, and I mean trillions of dollars. Instead of, um, you know, saying no you know, all they, Fannie Mae told the bank, look, we know that you ran out of people that have 20% down and we know that you took, you know, all the people with good credit and then that, you know, that have a job that earn the kind of money that we usually require. We ran out of those people. So give the loan to anybody. So high anybody- risk, high
1: risk mortgages.
2: That's exactly what it is, and that's where the subprime term came. A prime borrower, again, um, Richard, has three components. A down payment, they want equity in the house. They want to know that somebody has their own cash in the house so they don't, you know, walk away. What they're trying to do is just get repaid, And, and after years of learning how to do this, and millions of foreclosures and lawsuits and everything, they know that if somebody has a down payment, usually 20%, they earn a living and have a job that can be verified and have a decent credit you know a history of paying bills on time they'll probably pay the mortgage and that's what the bank is looking for
1: right but not anymore because all of a sudden now they've got trillions of dollars they've got to find some place for it to land and they want they want the lender now to throw out those rules sort of wink wink nudge nudge out the window we'll take anybody with a pulse give them a mortgage
2: Yeah, that's pretty much it. Instead of, they rewrote the whole uh, guidelines, and that's where the term subprime came from. Uh, They said we don't need a down payment, uh, and that's when banks started putting together 100% financing loans. They'll give you the down payment and the mortgage. Right. Uh, You know, and they credit rating, they didn't even check it, and then the biggest problem or not I would say this was the biggest first step was when Fannie Mae came with the announcement saying we have loans don't ask don't tell and so no income verification that was the easiest thing and it's always been the easiest thing you know to lie about when you get a mortgage is how much money you make you know they're looking for this Three to one ratio. Well, you know, just tell them that you make a, you know three thousand dollars if your mortgage is one thousand, and that that was the first step they made was we're not even going to check. Right. So that that was the big one, and then everything sort of fell from there. So
1: well, as you point it, out it, in as true. you point out in in, in fractals of deception that really the, the whole real estate in, industry is, is built upon, I mean, a certain amount of fraud is built into the equation. Uh, and this is mortgage fraud that was being committed by the institutions. They knew these people yeah. weren't qualified. And I heard stories about, because banks know what's happening on the ground, they would know, for example, the local plant someplace was about to be outsourced. All that work was going to Mexico. They knew that in six months, All of those jobs would be gone, and those people that worked there, they were giving a mortgage to, they knew they would be out of work.
2: Yes, but there's no question about it. That's why they wrote in the regulation was to kind of safeguard the bank. Worse, the the Fannie Mae said, look, you don't even have to ask them. That way, if they get caught in a lie, we're saying that they've been working for a factory that left, you know, the country two years ago... The bank wouldn't be held liable on any sort of underwriting snafu, so they said, "Don't even ask them what they make. We won't ask for tax returns. Just tell them to fill in something." And so that was the big tip-off. Everything went downhill from there. Right. And then, you know, then and meanwhile, get
1: through- you get then you get hired. Uh, you yes. had you had you had been running a, a successful industrial hemp company that that went under because they closed the border to imports and hemp was illegal uh, suddenly uh, and so your fantastically successful uh, enterprise really you know one of the first uh, went under so you were looking for something temporary and you get hired uh, as an escrow agent correct
2: That's correct I, I, I uh, was I, I, I knew that business when I went to college. Uh, you know, I got a job in a bank, and uh, and I, so I, I knew how to do that stuff. It, it's title and escrow. So I was an escrow agent and a title officer. And I was working in California where you don't have lawyers don't handle that in that state. Escrow companies handled the entire closing. So that's when I was called by people that I hadn't seen for, you know, 10, 15 years, you know, asking me if I will come and do that. They needed somebody, you know, I had a manager sort of capacity when I would left that business, so I did that, and they paid me uh, an exorbitant amount of money to move where they were to do that. So I knew something was up, but it was a real honeymoon of mortgages. Right, and
1: it, it sounded like the way you described no it. To The way you describe it in the book, it sounded like it was like a a mortgage sweatshop because they had so many staff. They were working like literally around the clock. They had to feed this monster. They had to supply mortgages. It got to to the point that there was was more mortgage. You know, this is always the case, right? When you have, for example, when people are buying uh, uh, shares in gold, you know, there's so much paper flying around. There's more paper than gold. Uh, so you, yeah, had, you had more, exactly. you had more mortgages than you had residential real estate in the country.
2: That's right, and and that's another thing. The government has ways of checking that. Okay, again, it, it really starts there. There was a whole bunch of stuff and shenanigans on Wall Street, you know, selling the bundles and things like that. But but I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't in that game you know these we were loan originators we were the people creating these gambling chips that the uh, big short guys were throwing around they couldn't function without us so we were uh, the bankers were out gathering god knows who even uh, uh, you know making up people's names a lot of times and putting in fake addresses And then, um, you know, we were just closing it because we don't get involved in any underwriting. And so we just saw the documents and we just did it. And you're right. That is usually a, it's a pretty much of a, you know, it's a hectic job and it's a busy job, but it's an eight hour a day. We were doing, uh, the girls were working third shift in there. We had three shifts of girls and people coming in to sign loan docs at three in the morning. <laughs> so that, now that's, now you know something right when that happens. And again, there were more mortgages, more paper in existence being sold back to the government than there was people or land. And, the, and every county tracks real estate and those numbers go into the federal government. So they know that there's X amount of houses and there's double the amount of residential mortgages.
1: Now, so, how, how much of this was born out of desperation with the government, these government-sponsored enterprises, in the wake of 9-11 when they realized, because of, in part because of 9-11, we were staring at a depression and they had to they had to increase liquidity, just crank it up like you know, an, unbelie- an unbelievable amount, and so that this this uh, scam really was just an a, a desperate attempt to create liquidity.
2: Well, that's I it's it, it all comes together perfectly. It's beautiful. The dot com blows up. The money moves from the stock market, needs a home. The United States is right on the brink, um, you know, with the 9-11. You're right. And so it created jobs galore. You know, people, we had uh, notaries, for example, that would come in and out of our office that would sign loan documents on the road, and they were like truck drivers. And uh, different people, the waitresses, people that had never uh, been involved in real estate were now working in that industry in positions of, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, very solid and substantial positions. So it created a lot of jobs. And you're right. It probably, real estate boom, uh, created the, the country, as it t- saved it from the brink of collapse back in 2002, and then it just parlayed out of control by 2006, absolutely. Now, I mean, there was like eight $8 trillion had been absorbed in this economy, right. in residential real estate. Now, so, the other anyway, thing I was,
1: sorry. no, I was just going to point out, this is the other part, and you say you were creating these gambling chips, and, and uh, because these, you alluded to it earlier, these uh... mortgages they're bundled together and and uh... they become investment instruments so people can buy them you can buy mortgages and uh... but but they have to be rated by a by a rating agency and the rating mm-hmm. you know so that the consumer who's going to invest knows well this is this is a solid investment you know it's a triple a or whatever rating however the rating works these bond rating agencies uh, or these uh, Whatever you call them, they they knew darn well these were bad mortgages, and so they turned oh, a blind yeah. eye and they gave them a AAA. Because this is important to understand: when the whole thing collapses, it's just not about people, you know, losing their house that they couldn't afford to, to buy anyway, but it's also about the people that in that invested in these mortgages, uh, and they were they were scammed also, so they go down as oh. well.
2: Absolutely, anybody with an IRA, an account. Uh, that, you know, in the heyday, these investment managers, you know, were buying up and they would call them bond pools. And, and you know, you're right. Standard & Poor, uh, Moody's, all these guys rate these bond pools. And then, when, of course, when everything blew up. Uh, you know, uh, the rating agencies were all questioned severely, but somehow they got away with it. But you're right about that. And an investment manager who runs, you know, uh, uh, just a guy with a simple little IRA, his account would come in, his bank statement every month, maybe has 60000 in it. And then when, uh, you know, when everything went down, it went to about 60 cents. And so you're right. It, what you didn't even have to be involved in the mortgage uh, end of it to realize the p- uh, pain from that collapse.
1: Now you you lasted in this because <laughs> it becomes abundantly clear uh, you get bored easily, and this was kind of a monotonous job, and you didn't particularly like your your boss. Uh, yeah. There's nothing worse than than you know having to kowtow to someone who should be getting your coffee. Uh, and, and so you, I guess you lasted about 10 months and, and she felt threatened by you or didn't, didn't like your attitude or whatever. And you were happy to be shown the door, quite frankly, right?
2: Well, I, I wasn't really fired per se. I think things were, uh, this would have been about 2005. So things were winding down. And since I was one of the higher paid people, I was one of the first ones let go. So, yeah, and I was ready to go. If they weren't going to get, look, it was a burnout situation. I mean, I wasn't interested in that job in the first place, but the money they were paying me so well, I thought I would go and give them a hand, but, you know, I'm not cut out to work uh, 24 hours a day. So, yeah, it ended, but... You know, I thought, well, you know, I might as well get my uh, action in on the real estate because they were still throwing money around. So when I left, I, I invested in some properties on my own. Yeah,
1: and and um, you went back to your your native Ohio. Uh, yeah, and you, you started to buy some some properties there, and uh, just just sort of walk walk us through what happened.
2: As a result stage, well, I mean, okay, so what happened was, yeah, I was a little overextended. I got a couple of partners and we were going to flip some properties and we were taking advantage of the um, 100% financing, you know. And um, I, I'm not going to get specific about where any of this happened or any names or anything like that, but uh, when everything crashed, and suddenly the mortgage industry dried up. You know, we were sitting on some very valuable real estate that we couldn't sell that was, you know, deflating in value by the minute, you know. And uh, so, but I was thinking, well, you know, maybe we can do this short sale became common. Maybe we could rent it. You know, we tried to pull everything together, uh, you know, work out there because everybody was having the same problem. You know, when the market collapsed in 2008, in September, you know, I mean, all you had to do was drive down the street and all you would see is foreclosure signs. And uh, in, in Ohio, where the uh, sheriff, you know, handles all the foreclosure sales, they stopped taking them because they didn't have the manpower to, to take the house. They told the bank to go get somebody else to do it, you know, so... It was the exact opposite of the the boom when it blew up. It really crashed, and people were really scrambling. So, and then of course everybody um, was really mad. That wasn't you know like we talked about when they looked at their bank statements. They saw that the bank statement uh, had sixty cents in there when it was sixty thousand dollars, and people were mad and they had Occupy Wall Street and all this kind of stuff, and, and people wanted the bank to go down because, you know, it was kind of like just intuitive that they were responsible. You know, you can't, a couple of people can't crash a global economy, and you can't do it in one neighborhood in Ohio, you know. But, you know, there were some um, people that thought they would get the sacrificial lambs and people that were taking advantage of the mortgage market and, uh, and, and make criminals from them. And they offered large grant funds, uh, to, uh, create task force to go and arrest people that use the 100% financing program. And I was one of those. So yeah, that's how my story b- began and ends.
1: It's Friday. That means a visit from our good friend, Christian Dikaju, the real John Constantine of Paranormal Contractors. Hey, Christian. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm all right. How are you doing? Terrific. Thanks. We're going to do a two-parter on signs of a demonic possession. We're going to start off with the physical signs that there may be okay. a demonic possession happening
3: to to you or someone you know or someone you love. Let's talk about this. What are some of the physical signs? Before I start here, I, I want to make this abundantly clear that this does not mean that an individual is in fact possessed. All I'm saying that there is a good chance that the individual may be possessed. Not So please, to all your listeners and all your fans, anyone who's listening, do not automatically jump to the conclusion that the individual is possessed and go and uh, throw holy water and start um, uh, reading from the Bible because this that might not be the case here. What people should look out for is if an individual from a physical standpoint, a change which may indicate demonic possession, if an individual is showing more and more ability to predict future events. Now, I'm not talking about the lottery numbers, uh, the winning numbers are not talking about uh, a catastrophe, but something as small as I think tomorrow, uh, I got to be careful because I'm going to fall down. I'm afraid of falling down and, and breaking my ankle or breaking a bone or something to that effect or and then it happens. Now, someone could sit and say that this falls on this on the spectrum of universal consciousness, somebody having a perhaps a premonition, but at the same time, if it happens on an ongoing basis, more regularly than normal, we all have an experience at some point in our life, some type of prediction of what's going to happen in the future subtly. But if this happens on an ongoing basis in a short period of time, I would certainly take a look at possession.
1: All right. So precognition. And we should also mention that these these are listed, is it by the, the Catholic Church's Order of Exorcists?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's on their website. Yes. Okay.
1: So... What's, uh, what's, uh, what's another telltale sign you might be possessed?
3: It's also important to notice the physical structure of the individual. What I mean about the physical structure is their appearance. Uh, more specifically, if this is an individual that is family or friend or that uh, one of your listeners may have a personal experience with, has their facial features changed? And if so, what has changed? Is it a dramatic change or is it a subtle change? Now, if you're in the office and somebody walks in and you say to them, oh, my, you look so nice there. You look different. There's something different about you. I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that that person is possessed. It could be, you know, the, maybe might be female. The individual pregnant, have that whole baby glow thing. Or it could be someone's not feeling well or losing weight. But if someone, if their facial features have changed to the point where they don't look like them anymore, uh, then I would certainly consider the possibility of possession.
1: I want to ask you about um, one, of the, one of the things on the list uh, from the Order of Exorcists, and that is that animals suddenly show fear towards that person. Talk to me about that.
3: When an animal, cat, dog, I mean, that's usually what we're referring to when it comes to uh, these types of telltale signs, when they're in the presence of negative energy, they, whether it is a poltergeist or possession, they're going to show some type of reaction. If suddenly an individual has become possessed, their pet that uh, may have shared years and years uh, of uh, bonding with will start to show some type of the animals will be reluctant to come close to that individual and this should be observed because this is very important because animals have that sense that ability to see things that we can't and also to sense things and to smell things that we can't we all know that so it's important to see how the animals in the environment react to an individual that you may think might be possessed all right these are just a few uh of the many physical signs
1: telltale signs someone may be possessed all right we'll uh, we'll talk next week uh christian about the behavioral telltale signs of a demonic possession how do people get a hold of you if they have paranormal
3: activity in their home or business they can contact us at uh paranormalcontractors at gmail.com, our YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, or they can reach us at one 724 800 That's our toll-free number. Thanks, Christian. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night.
0: Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later.
1: Susan J. Alt, the author of Fractals of Deception, Odyssey of a Great Recession Fall Girl, is here. So we were talking about how the government gave these huge grants to various states and other jurisdictions in order to prosecute the small players like you. So Ohio get this task force. They get grant money, and they say, "Release the hounds. Go spread that net far and wide, and catch somebody." Because we need to distract. We need to distract. The public is mad. They want meat. Let's give them that, and 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 they'll leave the people at the top alone.
2: That's how I see it. I don't think I don't think it can be interpreted any other way.
1: Tell me about that day that uh, that you were uh, arrested.
2: Well. First of all, you know we were um, uh, my two partners and I were being uh, questioned, you know, by the local cops, right? And we couldn't figure it one. Well, one of the partners was, and they we couldn't really figure out why because none of our properties were in foreclosure. We were still trying to sell them. Uh, We didn't really understand why, how all that happened, you know, why us? But it was clear in this local area, again, I'm not going to get specific about it, but every day there was a new headline with people being indicted for mortgage fraud. And they were all like the local realtors and and they were indicted for using that 100% loan program that, you know, saying that the, the, we all lied to the bank because we didn't put a down payment in. But the bank was the one that put up the down payment. So when I first heard about that, we were even being investigated. I thought it was a joke. And I never really thought much about it. I'd never been in trouble, um, had any criminal complaints or anything close to that. You know, my entire career and I had been in banking for many years. So I just thought it was a joke and I thought it was just this big witch hunt you know, looking for the sacrificial lambs but you know, nothing will happen to us. And uh then but that was a mistake and because that's when everything changed and my life had nothing suddenly to do with mortgages. It was all about a big shakedown from a uh, uh a prosecutorial process. That wanted to be paid off, and if I would have paid them, I wouldn't have been prosecuted.
1: Well, this so is interesting. That... Yes, because there is a, a a moment in the book that is actually quite unbelievable. Uh, your lawyer was quite confident that he was going to get you off, and and you 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 tell how you know as he's leaving for the courthouse with you, he says to his secretary, "It's uh, it's get Susan, it's free Susan Day." We're going to free Susan today, or save Susan. And uh, so he waltzed into that courtroom pretty confident. Meanwhile, you were sitting in a, I guess, in a holding cell, as is customary, in handcuffs, uh, expecting good news, right?
2: Well, uh, I was expecting to get a a trial date, yeah, and I, I came to go to trial, and, uh, and so, yeah, I'm sitting there. I wasn't in handcuffs yet. Nothing had happened yet. Uh, but I demanded to go to trial the whole time. And every, there were 12 of us were indicted on my case, okay, uh, only four of whom I even knew. So I didn't even know some of the people who were indicted. They were anxious, so anxious to do it. But people were paying their way out of it. The you know the cops weren't kidding. I mean they were they would put you in jail. I I thought well look I'm going to take my chances with the jury. Everybody else can make a plea. I am not going to. And then so at the end uh, when I at the end of the uh, you know when I came to go to trial. Yes, I was sitting in a room, and I got a text. Uh, from my lawyer on my phone, I was still sitting, they hadn't taken my phone or anything. And it just said, you know, uh, pay the judge 100,000, or you're going to prison. So when you say that he was, he, he, but but you know, Richard, he really knew that from the beginning. I mean, he didn't just come up with that as it, you know, as things progressed and I began to really sift through everything and understand what had happened to me, you know, he really was in the in with the prosecutor from the beginning, you know, he, I was never going to go to trial only. I was the only one that didn't know that, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like right. they were going to keep the pressure on me so bad. They were going to indict my mother, who's 90 years old and doesn't know anything about real estate. It wasn't even, didn't even know what I did. But they were going to do it because they did it to another guy, some other broker who pled guilty because they indicted his uh, mother. And uh, I guess she answered the phone for him or something, and they got her on wire fraud. So he wound up pleading you know, he paid and got out of it. And then at the end of my case, when I refused to give in and I wanted to go to trial, they said, pay the 100000 Can you arrange this payment? And I said, no, and I'm not paying any bribes to any judges. You know, I texted him back. And then when I went into the courtroom, I was just, within three minutes, I was in jail and sentenced to nine years.
1: Without trial.
2: Yeah, I mean, no. They said that uh, I had made a motion. Uh, I had made a motion before uh, to go to trial. See, what happened was a few, uh, a couple of months earlier. Just so that it makes sense when I tell the story, when I went back to go to trial, this would have been July. They told me that's when they told me I was going to. uh, They were going to indict my mom if I didn't plead guilty. So I wound up pleading guilty in July, and I was completely traumatized, but I couldn't afford to have that happen, so when, after I left the courtroom, I thought, oh my God, and you know, they only gave me five minutes to decide, and the judge wouldn't take my plea at any other time, things that I know now are illegal to do, right? Mm. But uh, after a couple of weeks after that happened, or actually a few days after that happened, I had contacted my lawyer and told him I I screwed up, and he was um, he he said that's fine. I can take away the plea. I will file the papers to vacate the plea, which they will do. Okay, because I had no criminal record or anything like that, and so and he goes and then we'll get the trial date, and so that's what that's how I wound up in that predicament, and then in December. I was called six months later. I thought this was all done, right? And I was just waiting for a new trial date in the spring. That's when they called me back in December to go to court, and that's when I went into this little room, and they said, uh, we need the 100000 now, or we're not taking away that plea. So, see, the attorney had never even filed those papers. Right. They never even had that.
1: So because no, the, the plea not- wasn't waived, you had pled guilty, uh, so it was do not pass, go go directly to jail.
2: That's exactly what happened. I And again, it's my own fault. I should have never, you know, trusted these people. I should have been better uh, briefed. I mean, I don't know who to blame, but that's exactly what happened. So they just said, well, look, we're not going to he never told, vacated the plea anyway so he didn't even make the motion i guess he could have said something and maybe you know pulled it out of the fire had i wired the 100 grand to the judge i i will never know that but i but i but i'm glad i didn't because i have a uh, suspicion now that i know sort of who i'm dealing with you know that these guys i could have paid them the 100,000 and they would have sent me in anyway you know I once you're pl- in that game of playing an extortion sort of thing right. or in the middle of a shakedown, it never stops
1: it is a shakedown so, and it seems shaking. it seems unimaginable uh, to, I, I guess I'm naive, but to, to imagine a judge would be so brazen as to demand from the defense attorney have your client wire me a hundred thousand. Or I'll send her to jail?
2: Well, I I wasn't privy to that conversation, but that's the gist of it. But, you know, Richard, it goes on all the time. So I don't think that I was the first, and I'm certainly not the last in that bunch that ever had that. I think that I gave them more trouble, you know, than most people. You know, most people would have cracked, like, before I did type of thing. They would have paid or done something. But, I, I, see, I I screwed up and pled guilty, and that's my message to the universe, you know. Never do that, you know. Don't don't take the pressure of pleading like that. Uh, In my case, it it was deadly because once they've got that, you know that vacating the plea and reversing it while they're supposed to do it, they don't have to. How many? And that's where the. How,
1: how many of ahead. you? How many do you know? How many went, went to jail uh, because of mortgage fraud so in I, this case?
2: In, in this particular county, and I'm talking about just one county. This, they are widely known for voter fraud and just all kinds of shenanigans. So, this, what we're doing, what we were doing was, you know, uh, sort of like uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears for these guys after I came to find out who they were and what was going on and everything. But uh, there were 2,000 people indicted, local realtors. And I'd say probably I don't know, maybe 500 went to jail or something.
1: Wow! And as you say, uh, <laughs> the Ohio slogan is uh, "Come for vacation and leave on parole." It's like an industry. Leave
2: there. on yes, yeah, come come for vacation, leave on probation.
1: Probation, right, right.
2: And they're not. And, and the thing about it is, I grew up here, but my business experience is in the. It's not here, so I really didn't know this is like deputy dog meets Barney fight and the and and, and the, uh, the the shenanigans are so brazen like you know to get a text message asking for a bribe you know I mean people don't believe that but in my screenplay you know my text message is like its own character you know, because I kept, and once I got in prison, I mean, I started filing appeals and, and, and I got very involved in my own legal work because I just thought, my God, somebody has to help because they don't understand how all this happened and, you know, this can't be legal and blah, blah, blah. Nobody cared. The appellate court, everything all the way up the chain is all the same.
1: You were sentenced and to five it, years, it, correct?
2: I was sentenced to nine
1: Nine.
2: for two mortgages, but I did five. I wound up doing five, and then I got out early.
1: Do you still have that, 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 that phone with the text messages?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got all my old computers with the emails, my attorney asking me. I've got email that I attached to my appeal. There's one in there that says, look, if you pay off these guys, they'll leave you alone. And I mean, but nobody cared. Honestly, I took it to the court, I took it to the bar association, I took it to the Supreme Court, and then most of my stuff came back um, called res judicata, which means that I uh, the judgment already was rendered, and uh, that this case is over. So you missed any deadline. You know, instead of arguing the merits of anything that I presented, it would always be that I missed a deadline. It, it's unbelievable to live through. How did but you survive? Not, uh, how
1: did you survive your your stint in prison?
2: Well, you know, it's whatever. You know, I mean, first of all, I was so mad that you know, and then I, I, I'm pretty versatile as a human being, you know, so. You know, I just do like anybody would, you know, that was the big question, and that's how I came to write the book, you know, is people asking me, my friends, you know, they can't even fathom this, because I never knew any criminals, and my family, nobody has been in jail at all, you know, much less prison, so nobody could really understand what that life is like, right? So that was the big fascination. How did you handle it? How did you keep from snapping and breaking down? But, you know, once you're in there, you do like you do anything else. You know, you adjust to your environment. And needless to say, you know, I mean, I got along okay. And, again, I'm in there with a bunch of – I probably met over a five-year period maybe over 200,000 different women. You know, they run prisoners through there. There was young girls in there, a lot of drug cases, a lot of stuff that wasn't even criminal, should have been misdemeanors. You know, if you think that I got nine years for two mortgages, some girl uh, took 50 bucks from her mom's purse and she got three years. So it's a joke. But I'm just saying for myself, I... I just dug into the law books. I became a paralegal. I'm now actively finishing law school, and I am all about due process. I'm just—I mean, if you're gonna get, you know, if you're gonna get hemmed up and get caught by the police, they need to do it right. You don't go threatening people and shaking them down and and you know and indicting their parents and all that kind of stuff. That—that's illegal. But it's also very common in some jurisdictions. So anyway, I I got by fine. You know, I'm unscarred. I think it certainly was a game changer. I I didn't plan on practicing law in my elder years, but I guess I will. And, um, you know, it's just been a whole new career shift for me and a real eye-opener.
3: You know,
1: did the lawyer? Is the lawyer uh, who represented you? Is he still practicing law?
2: Yeah, he still practices. He did lose his law license while I was in jail. I noticed that, but but only momentarily. Like he was only suspended for like six months, and he had just a ton of complaints. But see, here's a very critical thing: that once you are indicted. And in your name is all over the newspaper as a thief and all this other kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you're crazy. Uh, you know, I was late for a flight. I was suicidal. You know, stuff that I'd never even heard about that was published in the newspaper. And so you are, people read that and you immediately you know, think that, that, well, I guess when you're new to this, you know, you care, you know, you're just so humiliated. It's such overkill. I mean, it's over the top of be like, oh my God. And, and I think I put in the book also, it, it is liberating in a way because you, there's nothing more you can, you can't go at sink any further, you know? And so, It's just a, I I don't know, it's just a very odd thing. But yes, to answer your question, yes, the lawyer is still practicing. He's had many fines, many complaints. It's hard to know how he keeps going. But again, if I'm the criminal and I'm all over the newspaper and I'm portrayed as this psychotic thief, uh, real estate... Uh,
1: right, no one's going to listen to you, exactly.
2: Yeah, nobody will, and, and the lawyer will play that up. And,
1: what about the... and he
2: the on that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. What about the judge? Is he still sitting on the bench? Or she?
2: Uh, they actually moved uh, her to the appellate court, her <laughs> aunt and cousin. Her aunt and cousin are on the appellate court.
1: And, I mean... Are you going to go after this judge? This is
2: uh, I, I, this is where I have to t- cut off the conversation because the answer is yes, of course. Okay. This isn't over. This isn't over. There's several people still in prison, uh, you know, that that uh, you know got more time than I did, and for the same thing. And it was really about using a hundred percent financing. So, if, you know, that is fraudulent inducement. That's a major civil case against the bank. But most of the banks that were running those subprime mortgages and stuff, they're no longer uh, around. You know, they all bankrupted. Right. Or got right. absorbed into some other outset, you know. Well, that's but the other no, thing. That's, that's
1: the other thing is that in the, in the big bailout that came uh, – Eight hundred was it $800 billion, a lot of that which went to the banks because they're too big to fail. We can't. They used that money to gobble up the, the smaller banks.
2: Yeah, yeah uh, you know, it, it, it really was, uh, I don't know, it was a tremendous uh, learning experience. I guess that's the best way to put it.
1: Well, that's a very I mean, positive spin. That's a very positive way to put it. I mean, you were robbed of a chunk of your life.
2: Yeah, well, you got that right, and it was a chunk that, you know, but 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 if but if you're focused, you know, um, like I was, and I really had a vendetta, you know. So I mean, I was I woke up every day with my best friend, my old best friend nemesis, you know, the uh, archangel of revenge or something, whatever it is, the goddess of revenge, and and it what didn't make me bitter. I can't really say that, but I'm determined that the, the, a couple of the guys, a couple of the guys that were in uh, uh, positions of authority within this jurisdiction, again, I can't get too technical about it. Uh, when, when everything's all settled, I'll be happy to talk to you again and tell you how it turned out for me. But one of them has already been sent to prison, and another one left town, so there's been some big names in this particular jurisdiction that were indicted. So it isn't like I'm making it up. It's, right. It, it they the feds feds got involved in some of it, but but it's still not over.
1: Well, Susan. And then all my. Oh yes, yes go sir. ahead. No, finish your finish. Yeah.
2: No, no, I was just going to say, and then you know, uh, probably at the end of the day, if you really want to take a simple analysis of the worst case, it was like. I don't know, like I had a couple of really good friends that I'll never talk to again, you know, that turned on me, you know, and that's kind of hard to find. And, uh, you know, good friends like that that you've known 20 years that were in partnership with me, that they're afraid of me. They they know that i am probably got something cooking. And, uh, and then, of course, those beautiful properties, you know, having to go defunct like that when the government took them. So that, that was kind of sad. But the rest of this, this story isn't over yet. This story, there's still, the ending is still to come.
1: And we, I look forward to hearing it. Fractals of Deception, Odyssey of a Great Recession Fall Girl. Susan, thank you so much for this. How do people get a hold of the book?
2: Oh, it's all over the place. Barnes, Amazon, you know.
1: And hopefully we'll see it on the big screen sometime soon.
2: Yes. Yes, that'd be the big one. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Susan. All right, bye-bye.
1: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to fill you in on what's coming up on the next installment of Conspiracy Unlimited. Hi friends, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me, and all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. Since YouTube demonetized my channel, I need your support more than ever. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash Be listening Monday for one of the most bizarre paranormal stories you've ever heard. Would you believe a talking mongoose on the Isle of Man? When she was 52, a reporter for
0: Fate Magazine actually managed to track her down. And and at first, she refused to talk with him, but eventually she relented. And she told this reporter that everything that happened at the farmhouse actually happened, that nobody was lying, she wasn't lying, you know, Jeff actually did what uh, everything, you know, everybody reported that he did. She had no idea what he was, but she wishes that Jeff had never happened. She said it ruined her life that she was forever afraid to let anybody know her real identity because she was afraid that that
1: stigma would find her, would, would, you know, carry on after all those years. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind